Good morning, Derek Reimer. Huh, good morning, Ben Orenstein. How are you? I'm great. I am uh, home. I'm working from the home. Yeah, so you uh, snowed in? I am, uh, but I'm, I'm happily snowed in. I'm okay with it. Yeah. We have about probably nine inches of snow on the ground, so everyone is working from home, mm-hmm. um, including my roommates, which is fun because we just made pancakes and bacon and stuff and did a little roommate breakfast. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so it's turning into a pretty uh, chill morning. Very good. Yeah. How's the unemployed life? Uh, the unemployed life is good. Can I start off with a rant about something? Uh, always. This is a podcast. Isn't that how they're supposed to go? <laughs> I think so. Yeah. So I, I'll like disclaimer this with like, it's very much a first world problem, but hear me out anyways. So I decided that I wanted to upgrade my monitor situation at home. And I had one external monitor and I was using my laptop as my other monitor, but it always sort of bothered me that they were different sizes. So decided to swing for two Dell monitors and put them on a nice like mounted arm so that they're floating over my desk. That's working well, but I realized when I bought my new personal laptop um, about six months ago, I went for the MacBook Pro that doesn't have the touch bar because I can't stand the touch bar. And so it only has two USB-C ports. I had just assumed that you could easily set up a hub to get yourself more USB-C ports uh, if you need to. But turns out that such a thing doesn't really exist. Really? Yeah. So like you search for USB-C hub and you see lots of hubs that go from one USB-C to a bunch of uh, USB-3 or the old style USB port. There are like a few products out there that give you two USB-C off of one, but a lot of them don't have pass-through charging, meaning that if you try to plug in a power cable, it won't pass power off to your laptop. And that's the only way to charge your laptop is through USB-C. So it doesn't really buy you an extra port because now you've given up your ability to charge. I've like spent about an hour last night trying to figure out how am I going to power both of these monitors? Because I, I want to go USB-C to DisplayPort because DisplayPort is the, I think, the best the best way to to get those bits over to uh, to the monitors. But... I've been trying to like play dongle puzzle piecing together to try to figure out how I'm going to do this. <laughs> yeah, it's going to get better eventually, right? Like eventually there'll be a bunch of USB-C connectors on everything and there won't be all these hubs and dongles and things. I, I sure hope so. I mean, I don't know. I, I found came across forum threads on on the Apple website and on Reddit and different places. People are just like, how am I not finding something to solve this and some of the responses were like well manufacturers aren't fully on board with the USB-C thing because apple just sort of decided to do it without widespread adoption so no one's manufacturing these hubs i think you need a powered hub i i really don't know much about how the hardware side of usb works but supposedly if you're going to have multiple USB-Cs, you need a powered hub. So there's a power source coming into the hub and those are generally more expensive and more complicated and as far as I can tell, like no one's manufacturing one that does multiple USB-Cs. I, so. I'm hoping this is just kind of like adoption pain where it's like, yeah, there's not a lot of USB-C stuff right now, but eventually everyone will hate this too and it'll get fixed. But I, I have the same thing. It's like I keep being surprised when I go to plug my laptop into a thing and be like, oh, God damn, I need that whatever. That just happens over and over right now. It feels like for developer or like professional laptops, like tons of ports of different types is like a seems like a given to me 
Yeah. I like the cleanliness of having just like a unified port system and not like the old days where you had a VGA and and an HDMI and a display port and all these all these things. But I mean, the fact that you're super constrained because there's no like standard USB to display port as far as I can tell, like you need the USB-C to deliver that volume of data, I suppose. I'm not sure exactly what's the limiting factor. So uh, I don't know. All right. Your rant is noted for the record. Yeah. Yeah. So don't assume that you will be able to get all the ports you need off of USB-C. Well, okay. Um, how are things other than that? Uh, things are going great. So last time we talked, I was, I believe, soft launching the manifesto. Uh, the following Monday from when we recorded is when, it was March 5th, um, is when I did the the big push on... Mm-hmm. Twitter. Twitter was Which the worked. main. I saw main it all place. over the place. Good. Yeah. It seemed to seem to get pretty good adoption by folks. Some of the numbers um, got 56 retweets. It drove 2300 uniques to my website. Uh, not too shabby. And day of I captured 262 email addresses. So I feel pretty good about that. I've experimented with this before where you just kind of promote. You click the promote button on a tweet and you can just insert dollars and they'll Twitter will figure out how to amplify it. And I've run like Twitter ads before in the past when when it was sort of a newer thing and you kind of had to go through the the ad manager and pick your audience and configure all this stuff. And I decided for this time just to see how well uh, Twitter did at kind of optimizing the audience to receive the tweet. And it, it like initially looked good. It drove 27,000 impressions and I, I put $100 into it. But it only drove 18 clicks, two likes, and zero retweets. So, so kind of a strikeout on that. But clicks. I wonder yeah. how many emails do you think did you get that far? I I didn't track all the way through um, because it just like promoted the same tweet that was organic. So I don't really have a great way of differentiating. You know, have like the same UTM params on the link. When you when you go through the ad manager, you can obviously like set up a custom tweet just for just for promotion. So I wouldn't totally write off Twitter ads or anything, but yeah, I mean, if, if everybody that clicked it signed up for it, a hundred bucks for 18 emails is like, eh, I don't know how you feel about that. Yeah. Not, not super great. Not amazing. So, yeah. Yeah. So not writing off Twitter ads, but I think next time I would like probably try to do my own choosing audiences and stuff and see if I can do better than Twitter's algorithm. Yeah. There was quite a bit of activity on Twitter. People, posting their thoughts, a lot of supportive, you know, messages and developers obviously kind of resonating with the message, which was good to good to hear. Also, like had a little some skeptics out there, which is good. You know, it can't all be positive. Some of the biggest questions or sort of skeptical thoughts that I heard were, you know, how is this different than X, Y and Z? X, Y and Z being mainly Basecamp and Twist, which is a, a product from the makers of Todoist. It was kind of good to to think through like, yeah, why why should you care about this and not just read this piece and then go off and, and use Basecamp? I think I don't fully have my my best responses to that nailed down. So this was a good opportunity to to sort of refine and, and think that through. And I think that'll always be a question. And on the one hand, I don't feel like I totally need to to always have a perfect answer to that because there's always going to be many tools to solve a problem. And I have a particular approach that I want to take with this. And uh, it doesn't mean that Basecamp's a bad tool. Like I would, I would not disparage the work they're doing. They're a great, 
great product team and produce a, a really nice, uh, nice product. But when I sit down and think through what is the ideal solution to this problem, it doesn't look exactly like Basecamp. So totally, you know, so. I, I saw you responding thusly uh, on Twitter saying like, yeah, those are those are good tools, but we all have our, you know, unique approach. And I think there's room for plenty of us. And I think that's that's a reasonable thing to say. And over time, I think you're going to figure out where you differ philosophically from these other things. And you'll have a, yeah, if you like this type of approach, then Basecamp makes sense. And if you like this type of approach, you should check us out. Yep, totally. And I think like there's something to be said too for building a a product that is optimized for a particular niche. You know, I, I recognize that the pain with Slack is felt by pretty much anyone who falls into the maker category. I feel like that's like maker versus manager is a good kind of way to draw a line between how different people feel about the tool uh, where managers are much more feel the pain much less because their job is to be interrupted. Maker's job is to try to minimize their, their context switching and their interruptions. So, you know, there's a broad audience that can fill the pain. But um, I think there's something to be said for going specifically after the developer market. We have kind of unique needs outside of just the the broad maker space. And a lot of the really successful tools like Basecamp are sort of targeted at more of a broad audience. And, and for better or worse, you know, they sort of have to try to please, you know, people who do consulting and client work and people who run small businesses. And, and so I think there's just an opportunity to be more more catered to to the uh, market totally I, I think that's makes a lot of sense and i love that your your initial niche is you effectively that'll just help you so much in making good decisions yeah the best opportunity for success is going after something that i know intimately so yeah and i picture like so we use slack at work and i picture trying to sell a team on using a different tool and if i send them to like the base camp landing page it's like a project management tool for teams and maybe remote teams or something and it's like, okay, yeah, that looks okay. But if I send them to um, level, it's like a better th- answer for development teams that are tired of Slack interrupting them. It's like, okay, that is going to resonate a heck of a lot more. Yep, totally. And that's the hope. So we'll see We'll see how it goes. But I think I'm still optimistic. I don't feel deterred by the folks who have brought up uh, brought up other tools. And I would say like the, the other biggest theme of, of skepticism is like, this is a people problem, not a tool problem. I've heard that in, in many different forms. And I think unsurprisingly, it's when I look at like who's actually saying these things, it's like uh, VPs of engineering and founders and people who are kind of maybe less on the maker side. So it's not totally surprising, but still just a good reminder that there's a lot of people who f- who just don't get it or just feel like this problem can be completely solved by instilling good company culture. I specifically tried to go after this objection in the manifesto to get out ahead of it. But one, people probably don't read super deeply. So a lot of people probably missed that. And two, like, it's just, I think it's going to take a lot of just nuance and figuring out how to speak directly to people's objections to really nail this point home that, um, that tools can actually help guide the way that users use the product, you know? tools that help guide the way your team works when they're a tool that's central like you know slack or Basecamp or level or whatever like if you have a github repo everything is an issue or a pr right <laughs> so it's like that that just that shapes how people think about things and interact around things yeah and like trying to drive the point home that like for sure if you have a bad if you have a bad culture an interruptive culture then slack is going to amplify that that in and of itself is not Slack's fault. 
But it's also true that you may have a very healthy, respectful culture and still feel the pain of Slack because like when I at mention someone, for example, they're going to feel the anxiety of needing to respond quickly because for all the reasons I outlined, it may get lost in the the thread or be many scrolls back. So if they don't respond to it right away, then they're risking missing out or or losing important pieces of information. But me at mentioning that person like that wasn't a bad thing and I didn't intend to cause anxiety. It's just the tool doesn't lend itself well to asynchronous conversations. So yeah, even if you're amazing about interruptions, you still have this infinite scroll of discussion that requires catching up with and is not organized and is tricky to come back to. Yep. So, so I, I find myself as a user where, where I'm proactively trying to be respectful of my team, I'm really at a loss of like, what's the best way to send this message to this person without causing them anxiety or interrupting them? And I struggle when you when you're struggling to figure out how best to do that, you know, the tools are failing you. Totally and, agree. Yeah, I actually yeah. had that exact feeling this week. So we have someone on our team that is um, sort of heads down on fixing a DevOps type problem. And it's blocking a bunch of other things. And so we're all trying to like stay away from this person so as to give them the focus time. But there was one question. I was pairing with someone and there's a question that came up and it was like, okay, Dan really is the guy for this. And I was like, how do I ask Dan a question in a way that's not going to interrupt him and not and like convey that he should not lose his flow if he isn't there? Uh, and it was it's tricky. Some organizations out there may say like, well, use email for that. But there's a lot of us who... We want to use one system, like ideally our communication would be centralized in one place. And if you just decide to like go outside the norm and use email, like there's a good chance that could get lost in amongst all their other things in their inbox, because if they're not used to using email as a way for for handling async things and they're used to using Slack, then that's subpar too. So, yeah, there's also... I feel like once we adopted Slack, people stopped paying as much attention to email, which is kind of okay. But now it's like email is almost a like a black hole in a way where it's like when I go look at my email, it's almost all just crap. Like it's it's not actionable stuff generally. And part of that's just my fault for not filtering better. But Slack is at least a better signal to noise ratio. Once that channel is established, it's hard to be like, oh, let me just go send an email to this person. It's like, why didn't you message this person instead? Yeah. And and I think the big part of that is that Slack is internal only and email by default is not. And so, and as soon as we shift more into Slack, then you end up with some kind of ratio of like, I don't know, 90% external communication and 10% internal. And then it's really easy for the internal important stuff to get lost amongst the, the noise of the external. I think, yeah, I think that's dead on. Um, one of the other cool things that happened this morning by surprise is uh, a DHH uh, tweeted a link to the article. So that was that was a pleasant surprise this morning to wake up to. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Did you see that before I had texted you about it? Uh, it's funny, right? Just maybe 30 seconds before you texted me, Adam uh, Wathen from Full Stack Radio pinged me on Twitter DM. It was like, dude, this is a nice share. So yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, I mean, he he shared it with his paltry two hundred and fifty thousand followers. So yeah, just know yeah, just a it. few. Yeah, yeah, I know. I retweeted it for emphasis, as I told you. <laughs> <laughs> I want people to see that DHH is talking about what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, the emphasis is better coming from people who are not me. I thought about retweeting it, but I'm like, ah, this is gonna look self congratulatory or something. So mm. I don't know. Like, mm, you can do that. Yeah, maybe. Maybe I, I can get away. It's, with it is tricky. It's a tricky line, I think. 
Yeah. You know, where it's like, how much stuff that's positive about yourself do you want to reamplify? It's like, right. Eh, it's hard to say. Yeah. Yeah. So I did it for you. Thanks. I can man. brag about you Appreciate as much it. as I want. <laughs> Appreciate it. And you participated in the thread. I, I like that. That's true. Uh, yeah. That was good. Yeah. I, I'm happy to leap to your Twitter defense. Oh, as needed. Appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> did that drive some emails? Were you seeing some, some people it, signing up? It, it did. I got about I probably like 30 something emails from that so far. So That's pretty legit. Yeah, totally. That's like spending $200 on Twitter ads. I know. <laughs> probably much, much probably more a lot more actually. That. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so that brings my my total email count as of today, which is again a week or week and one day after the initial um, push, of, is at four hundred and two subscribers. So that's some initial interest for sure. Yeah. So one of my next steps is to try to keep that list warm without, like, I think there's a careful balance here of uh, you know I don't have an actual product to show to someone just yet, so I want to be careful about like over over emailing to this list when I don't actually have a deliverable for them. <laughs> they're signing up because they're interested in seeing the solution to this problem. So I want to make sure like not to, I don't know, over communicate, but also keep it warm, you know? I mean, like, so I signed up too, just because I wanted to see what you sent to this list. I feel like some of these people at least just want to see what you're doing. So it's like, maybe they're not the perfect customer or I feel like it would be hard for you to over engage with these people. Yeah. That's like these true. are the, the 400 earliest fans of what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so somewhere there's probably like 50 of them in there that are perfect potential customers who have good taste and want to talk to you. Yeah. That's a good point. That's a good point. I probably err on the side of like not wanting to spam people and feeling too over, overly cautious about that. Um, you have these people have double opted in, right? <laughs> Actually, I don't, I don't have double opt-in turned on right now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> trying gotcha. to lower the barrier as much as possible. Nice. But uh, your uh, sign-up thing says you do, so you might want to update the copy. Ah, uh, yeah, that's why I got a few people uh, confused, saying like I never got my confirmation email. So I should probably I should probably use Drip properly. Um, yeah, I can I can show you how to uh, <laughs> change that message on that page. Could you walk you. me Could you walk me through that, please? I'll do a screen share. <laughs> Okay. Awesome. I'll make the first thing you're going to need to do to do is make a drip account because, as I understand, you don't have one anymore. So <laughs> I need to bring all my support requests to you now. Let's mm-hmm. flip the tables on this. I feel like for the ultimate power move, you, you should have been using Mailchimp for that sign up form. You've <laughs> <laughs> caused so much confusion. <laughs> yeah. Just mess with people. Yeah. Uh, so okay. So what's next? You got 400 emails. What are you going to do? Yeah. So okay. So I want to I want to do some outreach this week, and my goal as I sort of alluded to last time, is to do some customer development, some validation. Um, So I want to have conversations. I have one booked already that came in unsolicited. Someone basically cold emailed me and said, hey, I'm working for this prominent company we've all heard of and using this tool that I feel is better than Slack, but also feel is somewhat flawed. It's an internal tool built by this, this company. And so he's like, if you're interested, let's talk. I have ideas about how where our tool is failing, and I would it would be awesome to see if you can improve on that even further. So nice, yeah, that sounds promising. Yeah, so I'm excited to have that conversation. I got my Calendly account set up so that I can easily shoot someone a link and they can just book time on my calendar. So I think I'm going to email around that link and call to action being something like. Yay, you resonate with the same pain I have. Uh, let's talk about what your pain has been and sort of see if you can, if your ideas can help guide the product and 
So I'd like to have, I don't know, five to 10 conversations by the next time we record, I think is a good, reasonable goal. I feel like every time I have a conversation, even if it's just a quick back and forth on Twitter, it like sparks something new in my, in my head. Um, so I'm really looking forward to, to doing more of that. Hmm. So I have a kind of ridiculous, I'm just gonna throw a thing out here. Do you remember when I was considering building that like attribution tracking app and I had a call with someone and got them to prepay? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, What do you think of that? Hmm. That's definitely something to consider. I hadn't I hadn't really thought about that recently, but yeah. Let me recap that for people that don't remember while you you think about that. But so I I was considering building this product. Doesn't really matter what it was. But I had uh, found somebody in a Slack channel that said, yeah, we, that sounds awesome. We're interested in that. And so I jumped on a call with them and I said, here's what I'm thinking of building XYZ, these features, this kind of thing. Are you interested enough that right now you would prepay for three months at, I think it was $150 a month, and you'll be like one of my early alpha customers? Uh, and they said, yes. And they actually did do that. I felt really good about that because that's just like validation of like someone says they want the thing you're going to build is good. But like someone says they want the thing you're going to build and they're going to like pay for it and like jump that extra hoop. I feel like then you can really trust that that person is definitely interested and their feedback is worth a lot more, I think, than someone that's just like, yeah, I think you I think this is a problem. And P.S. I'm probably never going to pay for it. I think that is true in so many ways. I mean, it's been proved out by many folks in the sort of bootstrap startup community who've who've latched onto that idea of of taking prepayments and i think i'm already seeing signs that like that's actually funny there's this there's this uh video jason freed posted where he was live authoring a, a blog post and the concept that he was working on was the i think he called it the illusion of consensus or, or agreement or something like that where basically two two people can be talking about the same thing but thinking about completely different things and not even realize it and so I don't know, you know, how many of these people that are saying, yes, Slack is broken, think it's broken for different reasons than than I actually believe. And and maybe they're they're thinking of it in terms of like, yes, yeah, Slack for open source projects is broken. It's like, well, right. I'm or not Slack is I'm not broken because it. it's not free. Yeah. Or something. Right. Yeah. Or it needs more integrations. And I'm like, um, I actually think it needs fewer. <laughs> so I, I'm open to it. I need to think it through a little bit further. I haven't thought too much about what my pricing model is going to look like because I'm obviously up against Slack and similar tools that are really trying to wipe out the bottom end of the market with free plans. And I mean, there's an opportunity here as a niche tool that is an antidote to a major problem. Like I think I still have an opportunity not to go heavy on free plans and just charge from the beginning with maybe a free trial or something. But that's still like something strategic I need to think through is is what what the model's going to look like. You know, it's sort of like the the app store effect where with with sufficient uh, many tools out there offering free plans, is it even viable for me to come out and not offer a similar free plan just to to get people in the door? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. That that is something you could definitely think about. But I feel like the initial payment is not so much like this is a reflection of what my actual pricing is going to be and more a how serious like how serious are you how val- how validated am i really is this idea really i guess and so it could be the eventual pricing is wildly different than what you get from these people but a couple hundred bucks is like okay this person's for real yeah maybe some way to frame this as like give this a name make it feel like they're they're part of some kind of inside club or something mm-hmm. by like buying into yeah the early round or something yeah i think there's totally. something there yeah 
I know you have some like visual design work being done and like you're good at you're good at the visual stuff and the interactions and whatnot. So I imagine you're not super far from a a handful of mockups that at least show your initial direction and could get people excited and like and then imagine you click this and it does this and it's like okay like you can start to see how this thing is going to be better than what they've got. So I think you could you could sell the dream at this point probably. Yeah. And that's something that I'm also so I have two two kind of two next steps written down. One of them was the outreach with the goal of having conversations. The second one was um, sort of continuing to think through product decisions on pen and paper specifically. Um, so I've kind of made I've made the mistake in the last few weeks, I'd say, of trying to jump too quickly into sketch and like high fidelity designs and stuff. The more conversations I have, the more thoughts I hear from people, it's sort of, for example, one of the things that that was driven home was that I need to make sure I deliver on the promise of the tool actually guiding people to use good communication patterns. And my initial concepts have been probably a bit too flexible, and I need to think carefully about how to introduce the right amount of friction at the right points to steer people away from being interruptive. And I think there's a, there's like a lot of nuance there that I need to work out. And so I've been, I just have pages and pages in my notebook. I've spent the last few days, not even cracking open my laptop, just writing in the notebook and brain dumping onto paper and sort of diving into, you know, what are all the different types of messaging constructs that are important to have? There's things like discussions, there's things like notifications that people have pushed into Slack. Do I want to keep these types of things in level? There's sort of stateful things like what is like people like to pipe their CI build statuses into Slack a lot of times. Well, is that should I be presenting a dashboard that shows just your current build statuses? So there's like a lot of things like that to think through. How do I keep that element of connectedness and how much chat should there be infused into the product and how do I keep people from using chat functionality for important conversations? And like kind of the more I dig into it, the more I'm like, okay, I really need to give this some deep thought and not jump too quickly into building product. My next goal is just to continue doing that and trying to get more refined mockups on paper first and then once i feel good about those translating them into uh, digitizing them and and sharing them interesting yeah so i have a friend actually who's at a similar stage to where you are Um, he is building a an app for learning mandarin chinese and he's been recording a video once a week of like the state of the product he sent the latest one to me and was like, now eventually I'm hoping to do these for like potential customers in a much more refined, edited, rehearsed way. And I responded and said, send these to everyone you have on your list. Like people like entrepreneurship porn, basically. Mm-hmm. You know, like yep. seeing someone in the middle of the process is awesome and interesting. And it's like reality TV and it's it's kind of addicting. It may not be in your nature totally, but I, I don't think you can really overshare at this point. Like, here's a photo I took with my iPhone of the notebook of the, the thing I'm noodling on for the discussion view. I would be interested. Like, I want to see that already. And I bet the people that liked you enough to put their email in that thing are, are, want to see that too. Like, the process and the journey. I got to imagine there's a lot of people that are, are just interested in that. And even if they don't end up buying, they're going to kind of, they can help amplify your message. And they, you know, they're, they could be potential future fans or customers. Yeah. No, I think that's spot on. I think I, yeah, probably don't even need to wait until... I don't need to go to high fidelity mockups before I start sharing things. And I actually have, I have a page in my notebook that's I'm like 
noodling on some kind of YouTube channel or something that's like the building level series. And I jotted down like 15 different like topic ideas that I could do, not even taking into account like the earlier stuff that I could start doing, like just literally holding up my notebook to the webcam and showing what I've been working on, you know? I don't know if I'm ready to set a goal on like kicking that off, um, you know, this week, but I think that's also a way that I've thought about like staying engaged with my early subscribers and not just, not just taking from them and asking for them to help me, but also giving something back to them. And I think this is an interesting way to do that. The big thing I think will be to make sure that I don't end up taking too much time worrying about like, nailing my presentation of these videos or like editing them. I don't think they need to be highly edited. Um, I, I think this is the new thing. I think like this seems to be how, how people are building stuff these days is like dramatically out in the open. And I, I think it's pretty positive. Like if you recorded a rough video of something and you talk about seven things and everyone tweets at you about one of them, that's valuable. Like you could get, you can get value out of even these rough things, I think. And even if that feedback doesn't come in, it's still just, I feel like that's starting to build that engagement and that, that authenticity is going to get people excited. Like when I was building briefs with Chris, people would sign up just because they were excited about, they just felt the energy. They're like, I want to be part of this. This is cool. Things are happening. I, I want to take part of it. And like, why not make use of that? Open yourself up. And I think it. that's that's one of the unfair advantages of being small and scrappy and exactly sort of trying to attack this from the grassroots angle. Like I'm not trying to build a highly polished company that can stand up against Slack. I'm trying to, it's like, this is a problem I've recognized and I want to build this out in the open and I want to get recruit um, accomplices and let's do this thing, you know? Yeah. So I like it. Yeah. Cool. Well, I think I'm going to keep pushing you to just publish more stuff, be more open, Good. tell yeah. us everything. Totally. And I've also been, one of the things I've been doing is sort of journaling the big, big milestones that have happened. So I have two, two entries in this text doc that I'm just going to keep running for, I'm going to try to keep this up. One was the the soft, when I soft launched the manifesto on the podcast and then the actual promotion of the manifesto. And then I'll probably log one for today because I got the DHH tweet and, you know, sort of what, what happened from that. And and maybe even just cataloging like, you know, summary of the week. This week, I spent most of my time, you know, sketching stuff in my notebook. And I think this could be an interesting one, just chronicling the journey and whether this turns into something down the line in a more polished fashion or whether I end up just publishing this stuff online for anyone who wants to follow along. But I think the more like chronicling I do, the better. Something Rob and I did with early days of Drip was re- just recorded once a week, and ultimately that I got listened to that whole thing. Into- by the way, yeah, awesome. It was interesting. Yeah, it's called Startup Stories Podcast. I think if you search, should be listed in most uh, podcast directories. If you're interested, I think before um, you and I recorded, I, I went I went through and listened to all that. Yeah. And that was, that was fun. And like, we, we totally weren't, didn't know what it would turn into. Or like, we should just, we're doing interesting stuff right now. We should, we should record our conversations and then ultimately it might turn into something. And Rob edited it down into a couple hours, three hours, I think. Yeah. It was like the whole chronicling of the first year of drip, which is really awesome to have. So well, it's exciting times for sure. Hey, are you using GraphQL on uh level or do you plan to, or yeah. So the, the prototype that I've, have been working on which i definitely like 
pieces of it will be transferred into the real product. Um, I'm using a Phoenix on the back end, Elixir and Phoenix with GraphQL sitting, talking to an Elm front end. And it's, it's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty excited about GraphQL. Yeah, are you guys using it? Uh, We're not. Um, that may become useful for us. There are bigger problems to solve first. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I've just been I've been reading about it more lately, and I'm I, mm-hmm. I I like it a lot. It seems very promising. Yeah, I've actually my experience with it has been very positive, and a lot of folks I think tend to overcomplicate what it is. Like I hear people saying that if you have a if you're building a platform that has many different clients talking to it, then GraphQL is good. Otherwise, it's overkill. And to me, I've built enough REST APIs to know that like it's very difficult to know what data you're going to need on the front end. And it's very common to just err on the side of sending all the data because you may need one random field out of it. And just the fact that like the client can specify what fields it wants to receive and follow the graph and get all the related objects um, that it needs and nothing more is super powerful. And honestly, like it's been it's been a breeze building like I haven't built any REST API stuff. I've done exclusively GraphQL in my prototype. And the flow of building out those those endpoints has been very smooth. Um, so I would highly recommend like GraphQL. It shouldn't feel like a overcomplicated way to go as compared to a, to a REST API, I guess mm-hmm. is my my feeling. This this podcast episode is very us. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's like sure. marketing. Email address capture, pre-sales, GraphQL. <laughs> yeah. Got to throw in a little of the deep tech stuff. <laughs> totally. Yeah. I'm looking forward. I don't have much to share yet, but I'm looking forward to talking more about uh, like my Haskell learning adventure. I have been writing, you know, some Haskell for real, for, for money. And I've uh, been going through a book that I like a lot. Programming in Haskell has been awesome. I'm not quite ready to like summarize or like reflect, but I'm, I'm getting there. It's, it, I'll have some early thoughts soon. What's your earliest reflection comparing your Haskell experience to your Elm experience? Haskell is a much steeper learning curve. Haskell is more powerful. Its type system is more powerful. Uh, and, you know, it runs, it's a general purpose run on the server kind of language. Uh, Elm has picked its niche and has simplified. So Elm was a much easier thing to pick up. But Haskell is basically, it kind of feels like a superset of Elm. So I actually think learning Elm first helped me learn Haskell a lot. So I'm, I'm kind of thinking Elm might be that sort of narrow edge of narrow point of the wedge that gets people saying, wow, like strong type systems are cool and a smart compiler is cool. I, I really appreciate this here. And that might be hopefully enough to get them over the like, Haskell's a little prickly. It's a little hard. Um, yeah. So we'll see. It's the gateway drug of functional programming languages. Yeah, we'll see. It might be. <laughs> okay. Um, I think it's got a chance of being that. Yeah. That's cool. I... um. So I'm going to be attending a Haskell meetup, I think, next week, maybe, here in the Twin Cities. Yeah, because I, I've been looking for an Elm meetup, and such a thing doesn't exist um, out here in the Twin Cities. And considering starting a meetup, I know that there's there's a number of folks who, well, we hired one guy who kind of specializes in Elm to work on our, our visual email builder at Drip. And so he's super interested in participating in an Elm meetup. And I know there's like everyone on the team, on the Drip team, was very intrigued by Elm. Even the people who are not really working on front end stuff all sort of expressed interest in learning more about it. And there's a lot of like people who could potentially be interested in Elm and don't even know it yet. 
And I feel like that's there's a good opportunity to to sort of use a meetup as a catalyst for that. But I know that I, I've heard that there's a number of um, Elm fans who currently go to the Haskell meetup um, just because. Like the, yeah, you know that's funny. Close, that, close that's how it is in Boston, actually, and, and vice versa. Mm. There's a bunch of Elm people at the Haskell meetup and Haskell people at the Elm meetup. Yeah, it's kind of the same same jam ish. Yeah, but I know almost nothing about Haskell, so I might. Uh, well, they say on their meetup specifically, like you don't have to know any Haskell to come and and enjoy the the meetup. But cool. Well, this is hearsay. But when I look at the talk descriptions for Boston Haskell and from what I've talked to of people who have gone, uh, it seems to be a little bit neck beard type mm-hmm. system. Kind of let's like here's a crazy advanced niche funky thing you can do with the haskell type system which kind of makes sense because haskell is still used by like people doing research on compilers and things like that but it's not like a welcome beginners here's how to make a function kind of thing right um not, or like not maybe necessarily rooted in the practical more in the sort of exactly. the theoretical and the yeah yeah i've been talking to one of the fellow Hasklers at work he's a total haskell i wouldn't say zealot but big, he's a big fan he wants to succeed a lot and he thinks the sort of amplifying voices of people that are using it for work is really important because there is that academic use and people so a lot of people have come right away, away with the impression that it's only for academic use and so we were tossing around different ideas of like how do we how do we get this sort of practical side of it more popular and we even like we're talking of like what about a conference that was like haskell in production like haskell for people with who want to get paid kind of thing um, just to like have all practical talks yeah even just to focus on like the sorry how do you apply it to real world stuff because that's something that i always look for in meetups is i'm much less i'm much less interested in just sitting around talking about a language and how we can use it for for little prototypes or to build like a a funky game or something it's like how do i apply this to building SaaS? (laughs) you know and totally i'm always much more interested in like it's it's fun to like toy around with with uh monads and whatever like how can we how can we refactor this code to ultimate perfection? But then I always need to get back to the practical or I, or I kind of lose interest. How is this going to let me go faster? How are we going to get paid? Yeah, basically. How does this turn yep. into value? That's that's this will shock you, but I'm also there. I also care <laughs> yeah, about that. Totally. Well, I hope to be able to answer some of those questions. We'll see. It's fun being a beginner and I'm enjoying that process and like learning new concepts. And there, there's like a lot of like little mind blowing things in Haskell. We're like, oh, wow, now I kind of understand this thing. And that's that's such a cool idea. But uh, I think it's actually I'm realizing it's going to take me some time before I can sort of form an informed opinion about it, because it's not just like, what is it like to write new code? It's like, what is it like to come back to old code and refactor that code and see how many bugs slip through and come up with a testing strategy that is sensitive to the fact that there's a type system so it's like how many tests what kind of tests i still have like a ton of more way more questions than answers right now but i'm looking forward to to figuring that stuff out yeah it'll be interesting to see how fast you can get there on feeling confident in your takes on it like even for like getting into the ruby world i think a lot of us it took perhaps years before we actually like working on a production code base for literally years to see the spots where like okay now it'd be nice to have types (laughs) i think most of us who are fans of types have like worked with old ruby code bases or or similar like dynamic languages and seen the areas where things start to get more and more difficult over time or refactoring becomes more difficult Um, yeah yeah i think there's just a range of experience you have to have where it's like what about fixing this this bug what about hiring someone that uses this technology 
I need to go like need like 20 different libraries and see what it's like to find libraries and how well they're documented and all that stuff. So there's just, there's just all these different facets that kind of go into, is this a good choice or not? Um, and to me, there's like the, one of the biggest question marks is just that the Haskell compiler is really, the type system is very powerful, but you are trying to satisfy it all the time. You have to sort of fit your problem into like a type checkable kind of shape that takes work and it's there's a in, this inflexibility there uh, you sort of opted into that to that inflexibility and so, so the, the big thing i'm trying to figure out is like is that worth it like I'm, I'm sacrificing some things for correctness is it that much correctness is correctness that important uh so i i'm really i'm curious yeah it's like one of those one of those arguments that ruby came out strong against when it was sort of adoption was really picking up and people were falling in love with the language they were that was kind of the rallying cries like this is so nice and it's it's so nice that we're willing to sacrifice static typing and and now it's it's nice to kind of i think for us as engineers to go to go look at the other side and experience the other side at least and see like is that really true or was that were we just following a bandwagon you know of like we all kind of bought into the fact that like ruby's awesome and we don't need static types but is that really true i don't know right yeah and that's the thing like all the like the haskell people at work or that i'm talked to are kind of all like type safety type safety type safety like if you do it that way it's not type safe and it's like yeah but you know like people have built enormous applications that were not type safe had no type system at all and like it's still like they're making money they're still working correctness is you know it's one uh dimension yep it shouldn't totally. be the only thing you think about yeah yeah so more on that to come awesome can't wait cool all right, this is a long one. We should wrap it. Yeah, let's wrap it. Awesome. If people wanted to access the show notes for this episode, <laughs> what would they do? They can head to artofproductpodcast.com. That's the URL, and that's where you go. That is it. Thanks for listening. Thanks. So I realized the first, you may have told me this, but I, I feel like I might have forgotten that Rob and Mike did a postlude. I heard a, a startup for the rest of us postlude the other day. They did. Yeah. I just dipped into one episode. Are they, is that a regular thing now? Yeah. So they like, it was just, just so happened right around the time we started doing it. Um, Rob was like, Hey, funny enough, like Mike and I just did something similar. No way. Um, That's funny. So it was like independently discovered wow. this, this pattern. I think they picked it up from, I can't remember one of maybe like some other startup podcast or business podcast, I think, uh, did it. And their, their take on it has been like, wait a long time. And then specifically tell people like, this is, if you've made it to this point right. in the recording, right. this is like the secret post loot and don't tweet about this. So they've taken a little bit more of a, a secretive approach to it. Um, gotcha. Yeah. Are you still recording by the way? Is this our post loot? I'm still recording. Are you? Okay, cool. <laughs> by the way, this is the post loot. This is the part of the podcast that you, you're not required by law to listen to. Yeah. The rest of it, though, we will find you. <laughs> this, the, the penalties are steep. Yeah. Um, I think I, I don't know if I got much. I might actually just, just, just wrap it. It's like okay. it's a work from yeah. home snow day. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of more home than working from home a little mm -hmm. bit, but uh, that's what happens. Yeah, I didn't hear how how many how many work from home days have you done since starting with the uh, zero zero. Okay, this is the first one. I don't um, care that much for working from home. Like I like it. Th it's, this today is fun because all my, my roommates are here and like my roommate's boyfriend is here and they're all cool people. Yeah. yeah. And we're doing stuff. Um, but normally if it's just me, it's like, you know, that's that's not my jam. Yeah. And uh, so you guys are using Slack. Um, yeah. How many people total in the 
in the workspace? 20-ish. Okay. Somewhere around there. So yeah. you're probably not totally feeling all the uh, growing pains yet, perhaps, huh? No, no, not quite. We're probably not no. quite big enough. I think if our dev team were a bit bigger, it'd be worse. Yeah. Um, but we're still mostly all in one office too. So it's kind of like we can all just, and it's a small one. So we're just kind of, just you can hear the conversations happening and things like yeah. that. Yeah. So a good part of your communication is probably not actually in Slack, but sort of in person or, or totally face to face. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Yep. Well, and maybe we got, I can get some more get some more threads into your life. Maybe when uh, when uh, this product actually exists, that'd be cool. <laughs> um, yeah, hopefully, hopefully soonish. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we got we got we got other things to focus on. Like I'm, I just instituted some uh, retro retrospective. Yeah. So that was not happening yet. Mm-hmm. That's already been super helpful. Good. Um, just sitting down once a week and checking in with everybody and making sure things are on track. I think is totally worth the meeting penalty. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah, totally. We've we've definitely did that at Drip too, where there were certain times where getting getting all together in a room or zooming some people in for the remote folks was uh, was absolutely worth it. Yep. There's there, there's like you know lingering things like that hadn't really there was a there was a back like we almost aren't talking about the work that much yet because we're still talking about like a backlog of I guess frustrations or you know mm-hmm. issues and whatnot that mm-hmm. that I think really hadn't gotten come out into the open yet so. I'm, I'm kind of keeping them like they're almost like therapy sessions right now yeah. as opposed to like pr- uh, prioritization and, and things like that. Yeah, that's good. It sounds like it was much needed then. So it's good. I think so. Yeah, I'm yeah. glad we did it. Yeah. Yeah, but it's cool. I'm, I'm enjoying. Um, I didn't think I was going to, but I've been enjoying some of the more like managerial type stuff. Like mm-hmm. I've kind of just been doing it just because I, I felt like it, some of that stuff should happen. Mm-hmm. Like doing the retro, running the dev discussion make like checking in with people that are on projects starting to talk about like does it make sense to have person x on project y and like is that the most important thing and yeah. should we build feature x and whatnot and i was thinking more like i want to get back to just like slinging code and learn a haskell but um i'm sort of also appreciating a slightly more uh sort of product manager jury or like yeah manager like, thing. well i think you're kind of um sort of a, a natural leader type um Thanks. Uh, at least that's my sense of of you is that uh, and you've you've seen like a lot of good patterns arguably from thoughtbot like i think that's at least yeah. from the outside seems like they do a lot of things right totally. and are very very thoughtful about process and um definitely yeah and stuff so I, yeah i think if i were slotted into a place that had a stronger process there would be less of that but i am i, I do feel like when i see a thing that i feel like is not right i am a little bit i do feel compelled to go dig into it yeah you know it's like well my title is x but so i'm not going to do that it's, it's like no like i think this thing could be better so like I, I drives me crazy when i can't fix something that i think should be better yeah so i just start being like can i add a meeting to everyone's calendar <laughs> yes i think that's good though like um that you're coming into a place that has very little process and you have the opportunity to influence process in the right ways um as opposed to coming in and there's like all kinds of potentially archaic process or something that you disagree right. with and like rewinding existing process i feel like is much more difficult than gradually instituting good practices you know totally yeah i think that's true yeah. i also think I, I i did you're right like the, the stuff i learned at thoughtbot was really good like i mm-hmm. it's hard to realize how good you have it until you go somewhere else and it's like oh wow, like thoughtbot really we just i mean we put a ton of effort and time and care into creating good processes and yeah. so i can basically just cheat and say like <laughs> 
we should do a retro and it should be like this. And it's, you know, you're already 90% of the way there to something good. Yeah, totally. That's, that stuff is invaluable. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So props to ThoughtBot for teaching me all that good stuff. That was, yeah. was, was worth a journey. Yeah, way to go ThoughtBot. Yeah. yeah. Someone, I was talking to somebody who said he was thinking about applying to ThoughtBot. And I was like, do it. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's great. You should totally yeah. work there. Totally. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, I guess I'll let you get back to work. All right. We'll get back yeah, to we're, we're almost at an hour now. This is ridiculous. It's not a I podcast. Know. This is a long form radio play. <laughs> <laughs> yep. All right. Um, Bye, man. Good luck. Thank you. Keep, keep, keep hustling. Let me know how it's going. All right. I will. All right. I'll talk to you soon. <laughs> All right. See ya. Bye-bye. Bye.